So we come to this final text now in Luke 19, before Jesus will enter Jerusalem. If you've been with us now, you know the scope in which, G, in which Luke is presenting his call to discipleship is within this scope of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. In chapter 9, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem, calls his disciples to follow him. And then the rest of the chapter to this point now, from chapter 9 on, has been Jesus on his journey to Jerusalem and this call to discipleship within that scope. What does that mean? We got to Luke 19 uh, last week and we looked at Zacchaeus. And this scene with Zacchaeus is Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. He comes into Jericho just really hours now from entering Jerusalem. And as he comes to Jericho, he comes to the house of or he uh, encounters Zacchaeus and comes to his house. And we see there the end of our text from last week in verse 10. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost, laying out kind of his mission statement there and coming to earth. And you see in Zacchaeus, just as a moment of review to set this text up for us, you see a lost sinner who is found. Zacchaeus was curious about Jesus, but Jesus comes, he looks, he calls him by name, and like that, Zacchaeus is found. Then you see a found sinner who is changed. You see this life then of repentance and faithfulness, and we reviewed that. First, there is a freedom, a freedom from the bondage of sin, a freedom from this bondage to materialism, to wealth, to this lust for power that had captured Zacchaeus' heart to the point that he would forsake his own friends, his own people, and treat them with such dishonesty and bribery and extortion in order to gain this wealth. Jesus sets him free from that. Then there's a life of repentance as he makes um, recompense for the things he has stolen. And then you see that transition from that desire for wealth and lust for power into a life of generosity that captures Zacchaeus. And it's on the heels then of of this episode, Jesus still in Jericho, still just hours from Jerusalem, very likely maybe still in Zacchaeus' house. And as those would gather around, those who are still wondering why would Jesus travel with Zacchaeus to his home, what exactly is taking place here. And it's on the heels of that with this call to a changed life, this sort of final note on this call to discipleship, which has traveled along with Jesus all the way to the doorstep of Jerusalem now, this sort of remark and comment on discipleship and what it means that we enter into this parable. This parable is is really just an allegory. I'm going to move this pulpit over. It's off-center and driving me crazy. Any OCD people out there? I know we're feeling the same thing. All right. <clears throat> this parable is an, is an allegory. It, all that means is kind of a common story to, to teach a spiritual truth. So Jesus does this often. We've seen it in Luke as he approaches. He, he comes to this teaching and he paints for the people a picture or a scene or a story that's going to be very common in their everyday life. Perhaps it's a bit removed for us historically now, but for them it's going to be a very common scene that they can see and understand. And as he gets into it, then you start to see, oh, there is a layer of deep spiritual truth that is being revealed here. Often it's missed by the immediate audience, but it serves us very well in this way that Jesus teaches And so that is what he does here in this parable. Luke has a really helpful practice that 
I don't know, probably pastor should do more often is right at the beginning of his parable, he often tells you, you know, here's the point of this parable. And that way you know what you're listening for. Uh, for some reason, we think we're going to save it as like that big surprise for the end. You guys are so disinterested by the time we get there that you've missed the point. But Luke gets them with the hook right up front. If you remember, he did this in, uh, I think it was chapter 18, with the persistent widow who kept coming to the um, kind of evil magistrate. And at the beginning, he said, you know, I'm telling you this in order that you will learn how to pray persistently, consistently, and not lose heart. So he does the same thing here in verse 11. You see, what is this parable teaching? Verse 11, as they heard these things, he prepared, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He's correcting, in anticipation of Jesus entering Jerusalem, he's correcting their wrong idea once again of the kingdom. Again, people are beginning to anticipate even more as as Jesus gets nearer and nearer to Jerusalem, as we're only days away from Passover, is this the time, finally, that Jesus is going to establish that kingdom we've been waiting for? That, that political, powerful kingdom, where now the, the Jewish people will be that dominant people on the earth, and they, they will rule, and they will get out from under this Roman domination. And so he is correcting them on this point. We'll see, we'll get into it in just a moment. We'll see in a couple different ways that he's correcting their, their expectations. But we do remember, as we get into it, the kingdom is already near. Jesus has proclaimed that. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He says when Jesus is in their midst, he tells them the kingdom is in your midst. So the kingdom is already near. There are aspects of the kingdom that are already present through the reign of Jesus Christ, through the proclamation of the gospel. We've seen it in his power over the demons. We've seen it in his power over sin and darkness. We've seen it in his power over nature. We've seen, again, we just saw it in Zacchaeus' life, the the nearness of the kingdom. And yet, what they are expecting in the full realization of the kingdom is still a ways off. It, it's in between these, this time of what we call already, not yet. The kingdom present in so many ways and yet not fully realized. That's the, the scene that he's going to paint for them there. And it's important for us to know that because that's where we live <laughs> right now. He's speaking directly to us in this context in this text, he's going to tell us how we should live then in this context. So, point one. First thing he's going to do is he's going to teach us or correct kingdom expectation. The kingdom expectation. Really what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's, he's addressing the, the topic of eschatology or the end times. That can be a scary, tricky topic to address in church often because it turns into a bit of a weird battle over graphs and charts and that, that sort of thing, and that is not what is meant to take place. We spent a couple years ago, a few years ago now, we went through Revelation. We spent some time looking at that, and you see kind of some of the, the odd imagery and some of the things painted, and it takes a little work as you get at it. But the Lord speaks towards the things at the end, towards end times, in order to affect the way we live right now. 
It is instructive for the moment when he speaks towards the future. And we'll see that that is the case right now as, as he dives into kind of the future and what it holds. And so he is going to correct them on a couple ideas of their expectation of the kingdom. First, the idea that he's going to paint for them is here's the kingdom expectation. It revolves around this word, rejection. There's this idea that Jesus is coming, and it's about his time. And we're going to see in the triumphal entry, there is some excitement with his coming, but he is going to come, he's going to plant his flag, and he is going to establish his kingdom. And so the disciples, or those around him, they have this expectation, and he immediately corrects it in this, in this parable. We'll read verses 12 through 14. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. There's some historical reference in that, but primarily what's being taking place here is Jesus is this nobleman. He went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. While there, calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. Here's the picture of Jesus Christ coming and his own people hating him and rejecting him. That is the story of the kingdom, of kingdom ministry that Jesus is performing and what it means to follow Jesus to Jerusalem. It's not to, man, I'm connecting myself to the most popular, powerful person, and so I'm going to become popular and powerful. No, it is rejection all the way to the point of the cross. And those who follow him can expect to have and experience some of that rejection. Don't think you're going to be embraced and celebrated for faithful discipleship to Christ. In John chapter 19, beginning of verse 14, as it describes the crucifixion of Christ, you see this rejection of him as king. They did not want him to reign over them. Verse 14, I'll read a few verses, John 19. It says, Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, and it was written in Latin, and it was written in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. For those immediately in context... This is hours, days away from happening. Jesus' death and crucifixion, his total rejection. 
And he's, tr- he's telling them, you, you, you have the wrong anticipation if you think right now this kingdom is going to be explode onto the scene politically and we're all going to be embraced. He's preparing them for true discipleship and with it comes rejection by the world. And here we see rejection by his own people, the Jewish people. The second word that kind of uh, captures the expectation of the kingdom is delay. Delay. He's correcting the idea that the kingdom's going to be established immediately. And then he leaves. We see that in that, those verses we just, we just read. As he's rejected, he leaves for a season of time. He is gone. So for the people, it's, this is about to happen. For the immediate uh, audience there, this is going to take place shortly. And he's trying to prepare them for it. I, I, you don't understand there is about ready to be a death, a burial, a resurrection, and an ascension. And I'm going to be leaving for a time. How do you follow in discipleship during that time? But you see that time frame is still the time frame for us. We, we look backwards at the cross, the establishment, that inauguration of the kingdom in so many ways, and yet we still look forward to the full realization of it. There, there, there is that delay and it is in that delay where we live. There's two dates, divine dates, we'd say, that, that should dominate the Christian life. It's not your date of birth and the date of death. It would be the day of the resurrection when Jesus died, was raised, and all the accomplishments that come with that are won in the resurrection. And the Holy Spirit then, the ascension, is promised to take those accomplishments and apply it to the life of the believer. That's the first date. The second date that should dominate the Christian calendar is Jesus' return. And in between is our life. It's a life of discipleship, a life of plodding along after Jesus in discipleship. The excitement of the moment is gone. Jesus is in our midst, but not in that visible way where those disciples were used to seeing he's now gone. How then do we live in this new reality? So the kingdom expectation, and then we get really to the meat of this passage, and that is kingdom living. What does that look like then? This parable is different than the parable in Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. A lot of times people kind of connect these two. And there are some similar themes and similar sounding um, language in it, but it's really very different points that are being made. In Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, remember the master gives each of the um, servants there an amount of talents. One gets ten, one gets five, one gets three. I forget the exact numbers. But everyone gets a different amount of talents. And, and it becomes fairly obvious as you go through that, that Jesus is teaching that he, he gifts or gives people differing and different amounts of talents and um, gifts to be used for the kingdom. And he might gift this person in this way, and this person this way, and this person may have an abundance of opportunity, and this person might just seem like they have a smaller opportunity. But each of us are to use our talents, where the word, how we think of it, eventually comes from, our talents for the Lord, that we are putting them to use for the Lord. 
What's taking place here is very different. Uh, Jesus is coming, and he's giving ten followers, basically any of his servants, any of his followers who call themselves a follower of Christ, he is giving them one mina. They're all getting the same thing. They're all getting this deposit. Just so we, you know, you kind of can understand, mina is about... um, it can be pronounced different ways. In the, the Hebrew, it's actually just like M-N-A, so there, you don't have that I in the middle, so you can just sort of make up whatever value you want there. Um, but Amina is a, a few months' wages, basically. Three, four months' wages. In our context, I don't know, we'll just pick another, let's say it's like $12,000, something like that. So he's giving each of these servants $12,000. So in the context, you know, it's not like enough money to like run off and just do it up and live the high life for the rest of your life. It's not enough money to retire on. But at the same time, it is a, you know, it's a decent amount of money that can be used towards something productive that's going to take some care and some time to thought how you use this. So he gives each of them this singular deposit, the same thing, the same amount. Each of them have it. And once they have it, then he gives them this charge in, um, to be about business, engage in business. They're to get busy, be productive with what, they've give, what he's given them. Which leads us, what is this mina representing? What is it that when Jesus dies, raises, sends to the Father, what is the deposit that every one of his servants have? You can answer the gospel, the good news. It's, it's the gospel. That's what he's given them. Paul would refer to that as a stewardship. That it, this, this has been entrusted to them. We're charged again and again how we are to live, how we are to invest, how we are to live with this gospel. How it is to affect our lives. And so without a whole lot of detail within the story itself given to it. He gives each of them this deposit, each servant. He only reviews a a couple of them what they've done, but each one has been given this, has been given the gospel. And when he returns, he wants to know what you've done with it. Have you been investing in the kingdom? I think that is the easy application then that you take away from this. The greatest treasure, the greatest gift possible that our whole life should revolve around has been entrusted and given to you. And are you engaged in the business then of the gospel, of the kingdom? I guess, what what would that look like? How do we put the gospel to work, so to say? How do we invest that capital in the kingdom These answers are the Sunday school answers. They're simple. But this is where we live, and this is what we often ignore. You put it to work in your own life. You invest in the kingdom in your own life by growing in our Christian lives through repentance, prayer, and dependence on the Holy Spirit. You live a life of repentance and prayer, investing in the gospel by carrying out our vocation and our relationships in such a way that shows the supremacy of Christ, that's done with an aim to bringing glory to God. I mean, what marks the way you carry out your vocation? Is it, you know, the gospel 
is mine, I possess it, but it affects so little of the way I live that people at work would have no idea because I'm not generous like Jesus was generous in any way. I'm lazy, I'm arrogant, I'm stepping on others to advance myself. Instead of reflecting gospel truths, kingdom principles in your life, that's what it means as it's talking about, are you investing in the kingdom? Are, are, you, are you taking the gospel? Is it transforming the way you actually live? It's by knowing freedom from the chains of materialism and selfishness that allows us to invest in ways in those who are sick and those who are weak and those who are lonely and those who are needy. Again, generous like Christ has been generous, that we show mercy, kindness towards others. By loving our families, and obe- by loving our families obediently, the same sort of love seen by Christ and His sacrifice for the church. Finally, by making a personal investment in missionary work, by praying, by giving, by sending, by going, by volunteering, by engaging in those uncomfortable at times conversations. I know these are all just like the simple things to check off, but very easily, more often than not, than we'd like to admit, we have this treasure, this gospel, and yet so little of our lives revolves around it or reflects it. We're going to be judged by how we use this investment, how the gospel is working in and through our lives. So Jesus charges them with this. And so finally we come to the third final point. There's a few observations in this, and that is kingdom reward. So kingdom expectation, you remember, it revolves around things like a rejection. It's not immediately you're embraced and you become a big deal. And it's going to be delayed. We live in that in-between time of just that faithful plodding along, that that faithful following after Christ. What it looks like then to live is to put the gospel to work in your life. And then there is kingdom reward. I'm going to read a little bit of this passage again, beginning in verse 15. Luke 19, verse 15, it says, When he returned, so he is... He's now returning, the return of Jesus. Having received the kingdom, he ordered these, these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, You are to be over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with some interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. 
Kingdom reward, what does that look like? Uh, Just four observations on it. The first observation by just looking at it is is this, that there is power in the gospel. You notice when the servants come back, they're not giving a big explanation about how smart and how wise they were with their mina and, and, you know, they did all this work. And it did. It simply is this. They were faithful with the mina and it brought forth tenfold. It brought forth fivefold. There is inherent power in the gospel. This isn't about, again, this isn't the Matthew pair. It's not like the one with ten was super talented and just real gifted. And so, and then, you know, the guy with five, he was a little less. This is about all of us receiving the same deposit and then being faithful with it. And the Lord brings forth the fruit. That is the power of the gospel. I think that's a challenge because we kind of want to see immediate results, not sort of that delayed results. Pastor Adam and I talk often about the, the blessings and the challenges of being called to ministry, being called to lead the church. And w- one of the greatest challenges for me is that, you know how there's some jobs where at the end of the day you can just look back and you see, wow, X, Y, and Z all got accomplished. Ministry is so hard to measure success and the fruit of what's happening because really you're just an instrument. The Lord is bringing about all of the, f- the fruit. And all the success. And the moment you kind of get full of yourself, it quickly comes crumbling in around you. And, and as you invest in others, and even your own life, you see the ups and the downs of it. And you rest in the power of the gospel. That it is the gospel that changes, that transforms, that perseveres us to the end. The power rests in the gospel. Observation number two is there is a relationship between our kingdom service in time and our reward in eternity. I think this is a hard thing to come to grips with for many Christians, especially when we hold so dearly to faith alone. To connect any sort of reward with something that seems like performance. And yet, the Lord is clear through the text, this text and many others, that there is a relationship between our kingdom service in time and our reward in eternity. There are texts that teach of the reward in time in relation to our service in time, that as you're faithful what God has given you in time, he gives you more opportunities and, and more um, influence maybe in time as you're faithful with what he has given you. I think unfortunately for the Christian, sometimes we think, oh man, we're going to become a big deal and real successful. And often what that means is the Lord gives you more suffering and he gives you greater opportunity to rely on him even in dark and difficult days. But here the passage is speaking about something different. It's speaking about being faithful in time and reaping that reward in eternity. Hudson Taylor, a missionary to China, says said this in his biography, instrumental in bringing the gospel to China. He says, yes, a little thing is just a little thing, but a lifetime of faithfulness in a little thing is a glorious thing. That's the truth of this statement, I think, is confirmed in this text. First of all, what I'm not saying when I say that, I'm not saying that there are levels in heaven 
in the sense of, you know, we got like our bad Christians, our decent Christians, our good Christians, and then, you know, like me and a few people way up, <laughs> way up here. Way up here. That, that's not what we're talking about with some sort of, of, of levels. And, and it's not saying that some of us are going to receive more of Christ than others. When you come by faith, you receive Christ and you receive all of him. You are united to him. There is not any promise of inheritance that's withheld from some people. So it's not that. And we're also not saying that there's going to be some people who are just a little bit disappointed with the new heavens and the new earth. Because their reward didn't, didn't quite measure up. But we do know that the king is coming again. And we know that when he comes... We give an account for what we have done with the gospel, with the treasure that he has entrusted with us. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5. We all appear before God to receive what is due us based on what we have done. You see it again in Revelation, uh, throughout Revelation. In Revelation 22 especially states those similar truths. Here's the connection, is that you see in, in this parable, the, the one who had um, ten minas, he gets to rule over ten cities. It's not, <clears throat> the, the reward that you receive is greater opportunity and greater responsibility to serve the king. What that looks like in a kingdom, I don't know exactly. But with that responsibility, basically, is you receive reward, and it gives you the opportunity now to cast that, those crowns back at Jesus' feet in full acknowledgement that it is by His grace and His grace alone. And yet that is no small thing to receive that reward and be able to offer your service and your praise to Him in an act of, of worship and praise. And there is some sense, the scripture teaches, that God rewards us in eternity based on our service here in time. Again, not in any sort of saving um, type of way, or in any way that you possess more of Christ, but that you have these rewards that you can lay at his feet and offer him praise and worship and thanksgiving for them. Observation number three is that the blessing is way out of proportion with the service. And he comes back, they had one mina, and it's, you know, this mina's turned into ten. He doesn't really even say exactly what happened. And you see the blessing, I think it's meant to be overwhelming. Is okay, then you can rule over ten cities. <laughs> it's like, wow, that's way, way out of proportion for the service. That's the picture of Jesus in the gospel. That your reward is going to be so superior than you deserve or you can imagine. Whether you're rolling ten cities, you're rolling five cities, or whatever the allegory would paint here for us, it's painting this, that you're faithful with the gospel, and the reward for that is so much greater than you deserve. So much better than you can imagine. Which makes the complaint of the third man seem even sillier when he says you are a severe kind of judgmental jerky person. But before we get into that observation, I do want to read from the Westminster Confession. I think it gives us a good idea of 
the way the Lord sees our works and rewards them. It says, but when all, but when we have done all we can, we have done but our duty and our unprofitable servants. We saw that earlier in Luke. And because as they are good works, they proceed from his Holy Spirit. And as they are wrought by us, they are defiled and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Notwithstanding, though, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in him. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. As the Lord redeems you, he even redeems the best of your works and he's redeemed, so that he lovingly receives them and delights over them and is joyful over them as a kind father because he sees them through the work of his son. So again, we talked about that debtor's ethic a, a few weeks ago. It's not that I, God's done more for me. I've got to keep working, 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 working for him now to be pleased with me. The more good that you produce, the further into debt you are to God because it's all by his grace that that's produced in your life. And so what he calls us to is faithful stewardship of that gospel. Seen in just those simple everyday things. How am I treating my family? Does it reflect gospel truths? Does materialism and have a, a grip on my heart that I would never rearrange my, my calendar, never rearrange my checkbook, never rearrange anything in order to reflect the generosity and the selflessness that is proclaimed in the gospel? Or is it just still all about me, all about me, all about me, and I have you know, this great deposit and yet it affects me so little? And our boldness to share the gospel with, with others. I know some people are, are just more naturally geared and talkative towards that. Just because it's uncomfortable for you at times doesn't mean it doesn't matter for you to do it. Are we engaged in sharing the gospel? And all of that will be produced by grace, and yet the call is to faithful repentance and putting it to work. Get about your business with the gospel. Showing mercy, kindness. Observation four, and we'll be done with this. <clears throat> the rebel and the false professor will also receive their just reward. This parable doesn't really end on a super high note. Verse 27, but as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And yet, in a way, it does because that is kingdom triumph. I mean, we sing about when we worship the foes crushed beneath his feet. That is the kingdom of God breaking in on the domain of darkness and the battle that is going on. And we see these moments of piercing light. And then we see the church as kind of the center of the work, kingdom work that God is doing in this world. And so as we are equipped then to go out and engage the darkness, this is the promise at the end that the darkness is completely crushed beneath his foot. And so while it's like kind of hard to read, at the same time, it is a matter of triumph and joy. But we see it two different people. We see the rebels, those who just simply at the beginning said, I reject him as my king. He won't reign over me. 
Those people will receive their just reward, a harsh reward, but it speaks to eternal damnation. That's what is being spoken to here. They will be slaughtered before the Lord. It also speaks, I think, to this kind of false servant or false professor. And you see it that the last one who comes with nothing to offer, uh, verse 20 is where that passage starts. We looked at that. He comes. He's got nothing to offer. Verse 23, we'll pick up. Um, Jesus says, let me go to verse 22. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not. So what Jesus is doing here is the servant, you know, is not motivated by reward, is not re- motivated at all by the return of, return of Christ in a positive way. So instead of owning up to it, there's no repentance, he points the finger and he says, well, you're a severe man. Literally, that would mean that you're a, a strict or an exacting person. And so I was scared. I didn't know what to do. It's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. And... We know that is not the case because we've seen how Jesus has treated the others. And yet Jesus says, okay, let's just say I even give you that. I'll condemn you with your own words. You at least should have been motivated by fear then. At least do something profitable with it, even if you're motivated by the wrong thing. So he continues then in verse 24. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Their response is probably what a lot of our responses would be. And they, they said to him, Lord, but he already has ten minas. Verse 26, I tell you that to everyone who has, more, who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Again, this might sound severe and a little hard for us, but first think of the business sense of it and then translate it over into kingdom sense. First, the business sense, you know, let's say, you know, I've got three people working for me. They all manage two accounts, and this person's doing great on his accounts that he's managing, and he's gotten two or three new accounts, and they're doing great. This other person who they've already lost one of their accounts, they're barely paying attention to the other one. Is it going to make sense for me to come and say, well, this guy has six accounts now, and this guy has one, so I'll just give him, you know, two or three? No. What, what you're going to do is probably fire this guy and take the one account he has and give it to the guy who's already busy, but at least doing a good job. So that, that's kind of the business sense of it. In the kingdom sense, that's it. The one God's deposited, he's given everyone the same thing. He's given this gospel. The one who is cherishing it, the one who is loving it, the one who is working it out, God's going to give them more opportunities to serve Christ, more opportunities to bring the Lord glory. The one who has it but is been given this deposit and he is doing nothing with it, the Lord says that he spews out the lukewarm person. The question becomes, is this person a believer or not? Is this person the final judgment? Is he just getting zero reward, but still kind of sneaking into heaven? My, my tendency, my thought on it is that this person is the person who is existing within the church. He, he would be considered part of kind of our external body. He's here, he, he's part of things, and yet the gospel has done no transformation in his soul, is doing nothing 
to change who he is. He has no love. He has no taste for it. Here's how one commentator would say it. Um, as a, he is a professing Christian who is content with the idle possession of Christianity in name alone. He makes no effort to use it for his soul's good or the glory of God. So just looking at the text, you observe he, he doesn't love the gospel. He doesn't care about it. He doesn't love the master. He lies about him and accuses him. He does not bear fruit. He is not faithful. And he is not repentant. And to me, that would describe someone who then receives that same judgment at the end. And that is the harsh reality. But as for the enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. We live between these two divine dates. This is what the principle of a kingdom, this is what is being taught here to us. And they both should be motivating to us. They both should be moving us to live for Christ to put the gospel to work and to not be so entrapped with momentary satisfaction and, and a, a momentary recognition that is here and gone, and yet we give ourselves to those pursuits. The first date, the death and the resurrection and the accomplishments of Jesus Christ given to us, applied to us through the Holy Spirit, should capture our hearts and our minds. The second date, that Christ will return for his own. He will reward your faithfulness to him. At the same time, should motivate and capture our hearts. This is really kind of a challenge to our devotion, our discipleship. We're switching gears a little here from this follow me on my journey to Jerusalem to Jesus saying, I'm going to be gone, and it's going to be kind of a marathon for you of following faithfully in the little things after Christ. That the gospel is more than just something you've heard, but it really takes hold of your heart and transforms who you are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this uh, parable that reorients our minds to what we should expect.